My mother just asked about your mother. I just was on the phone with her. So here's the deal. Tony Gilroy and I know each other. Kind of. We grew up in neighboring upstate New York small towns. Me in Monroe, New York. Tony in Washingtonville. He's a couple years older, and we went to different schools, so we really didn't know each other. But our parents were friends. I remember your parents. I really do. I really do. I remember your dad vividly. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years, when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. It's been fun to watch Tony Gilroy's career as a screenwriter and director, especially since I know the place where he grew up. During his terrific 2007 film Michael Clayton that he wrote and directed, I practically jumped out of my seat when they mentioned during the movie that the character Michael Clayton went to Washingtonville High School. Gilroy knows about garnering attention. He wrote all the Bourne movies, which, rumor has it, were watched by one or two people. But now he's created the Disney Plus series Andor, a Star Wars vehicle. And that's a whole new ballgame. The scale of everything Star Wars is... You think you're prepared for it, and then it's just amped beyond... Uh your expectations. So yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a great week. I mean, we've never, I've never, I've never had, yeah, it's been, I've never had reviews like this, but I've never had this many reviews when they come piling in and I've never had this many people talking about something. So yeah, the scale of it is, uh, is always surprising. Is there some beauty in that actually to have been in the business for quite some time and to have something new, have like a new feeling about something? Oh my God. It's like, I mean, I'm not hiding anything. I'm 66 years old, man. It's a miracle. It's just amazing. I'm just so surprised that uh, uh, that I got here. <laughs> I'm still doing it, and that, and that, yeah, and that. Uh, I mean, I came here partially for the audience. I mean, that's part of the reason to come over here. That's one of the big in your pro and con column of whether to sign on to something like this for such a long period of time. It's definitely in the pro column. Well, there's an audience there. You don't have to go out and find them. You have to hang on to them and excite them. But uh, that's part of the reason. And uh, then <laughs> you forget about it for three years while you're hiding in a bunker making this during COVID. We just really, I think in the end, the last year or so, we kind of felt we were making this for ourselves. So it's a, it, the whole thing is, it's been a very surprising, pleasant couple of weeks. Is there a level of pressure or some type of pressure that is different from even the pressure of doing, you know, the Bourne films once the Bourne films were really popular. I know, you know, I know your shows about like finding what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, I'm not a very risk averse person. Uh, I grew up with someone, as you knew, my dad, who was who was highly uh, risk uh, risk seeking. Um, but um, when you find the thing, I guess some. I don't sweat. Uh, for all the anxieties that I have about all the stupid things I worry about, uh, I really, I have that weird gamblers thing that you hear when you like, how do people play in those big card games and they don't care? I don't care about that very much. That kind of, my pressure is, uh, the pressure on me right now is the pressure is there's a director showing up next week in Pinewood who needs pages to start prepping. That's what I'm worried about. That's, that's what's keeping me awake at night. I don't worry about the other stuff. I never did that much. It's, it's, uh, it's good that. So it is a rare joy to to interview someone who grew up in the same town. I mean, I, I don't, you know, 
I, I, my mother just asked about your mother. I just was on the phone with her. No, no, we grew up about like a half a mile away from each other. We did not go to the same school though. We were separated. We were right on the border. You went one way and I went the other. Right, which yeah. when you're that age and you're a couple years older than me, you know, if you go to a different school, you might as well be going to school like in no, Kansas. No, it's totally significant. Yeah. Exactly. So, no, it's a different country. Yeah. So what was your take on this small town that we grew up in, Monroe, New York? And you know, at the time, well, I grew up in Washingtonville. Right. You went to Monroe. I went to Washingtonville. Right. I mean, Washingtonville, as you know, was a very weird. I mean, Monroe was. Uh, I don't quite understand it as well as you might, but Washingtonville was very bizarre. It was a. Uh, you know, all the kids from New York, uh, all the New York City cops and firemen who moved up there in the '60s. All that whole neighborhood. That was my neighborhood. There was a uh, a really old, uh, established, very sleepy rural dairy farm community in Washingtonville that had a significant black population that was established there from, you know, land owning, uh, farming, very conservative black population. And then we had the kids from the base when Stewart Air Force Base was a strategic air command. So we had all these glamorous kids uh, who traveled the world and, and, and visited for a couple of years. It was a, and, and all of those three things collided in the late 60s and early 70s. And it was just an absolute mess. Washingtonville was really a chaotic, when I went to school, it was very chaotic and uh, and uh, probably very unique. It was very out of control. So this is about 90 minutes north of uh, an hour and a half north of the city. And as you said, you're growing up with a lot of kids whose fathers are firefighters or police officers. I'm going to imagine not many others whose fathers were writers. No, we were uh, we were freaks there, kind of, but we really wanted to fit in. Um, my brothers and I, we had a big house there in the middle surrounded by all this stuff. And we were very, um, you know, we were very lucky. I think we were very, we were kind of robust. And, um, I think if any of us had been, you know, easy to be picked on or, uh, easy to be called out of the herd, we would have been, uh, would have been really bad, but we, we, we embraced <laughs> the madness of our surroundings and went full, you know, we went full wild with all the kids in our neighborhood. And, uh, you know, that had advantages and disadvantages, but we definitely fit in while we were there. We all three escaped there as soon as we possibly could. I didn't really, uh, um, I left when I was 16, 17. So. And so is there a notion as you're growing up and your father, just to let people know, is Frank Gilroy, whose Pulitzer Prize winning play was the subject was Roses, which was, aside from winning the Pulitzer Prize, was major in the Michigan household. I'm sure. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, he was a big deal up there. My dad was a big deal up there, yeah. Was there a reason, uh, do you know why they chose to raise a family up there? Yeah, my, my father my father was very much a gambler, and he had some Bronx boy fantasy of owning harness racing horses. That He had loved the Hamiltonian. There was a lot of harness racing up there. My father loved to go to the track, made a living going to the track for some years. And he, I don't know, he had some weird city-fied idiot's version of, I'm going to go buy harness racing horses. So that was what attracted him up there. He never did that. He had a, he had a box for a while at the historic track in Goshen, but he never bought a harness racing horse. But that, that was the, that was the quixotic uh, rationale for being in, in uh, Washingtonville. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, also, I would imagine, something that not a lot of others around, around you on your block. No, had. He, had a, he had an office in Goshen. He had an office right on the track. And uh, no, he loved, he loved horse racing. He could not ride a horse. He couldn't tell you the the parts of a horse or he couldn't, he couldn't, uh, he didn't know anything about uh, equitation, but he knew how to read a, uh, 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 he knew how to read a racing form. Is there a notion as you're growing up of 
Or did kids ask, like, wait, your father wrote a play? He wrote a movie? How does that work? Were you being asked about it? Or yeah. kids just kind of get lost? Yeah, in- we kind of, yeah, I mean, we kind of kept our lives kind of secret in a weird way. We had a, you know, this real dichotomy in our lives where we would like go do all this stuff and go to Europe and go to Broadway shows and have this whole cultured life and all these, you know, that whole side of, and at the same time, we'd, you know, get on bus 13 and go to Washingtonville and just be as rowdy as we possibly could so that nobody knew what we were doing. And we, we, I, it wasn't an act or anything, but we kind of, my brothers and I all surfed this, surfed that, that, that community and and not in a not in some sort of manipulative way, just the way you do as a kid as you're trying to adapt. So we, you know, we had to be as wild and as rowdy and as tough as everybody else. And and at the same time, we would we would get dressed up and uh, live this whole other life uh, outside of there. But there was a notion as you're growing up, getting through high school, like oh, I'm getting out of here. I was always getting out of there. I think I was always, yeah, I don't know. I don't know when I started planning my exit strategy, but it was early. And so that first exit strategy, you, you went off to Boston University, right? I went to the one college that would, that where you could apply to college in like, I think I applied in like April or March or something. And you could, and, and yeah, you could, I was not, a, I was not a great student, but uh, I sort of copped a plea bargain in high school and I went away to BU at, uh, yeah, I, I turned 17 in college, my first week of college. And so is there yeah. some notion at that point of like, Oh, I know what the future is going to hold, or what I want it to be, or you just kind of. Uh... I was. I wanted. I wanted to be a rock and roller. I was a musician. I was. Uh, I had already been playing in bands all in the area. I, you know, high school dances and playing at the Stewart Air Force Base. I've been playing in bands since I was like 13 years old. So, I was like, I was an absolute. Uh, that was my mission, and I, I went to college uh, to kind of to, to kind of work on that in a way. Uh, I did go to college for I went to college for two years while I was playing up there and uh, and um, and I liked college. It was the first place I had ever gone where you could do well in school and still be popular. <laughs> Let's put it that way, <laughs> if that makes sense. And oh, like, that oh, makes wow, that makes a ton of, of sense. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, this works for me. And uh, and I and I and I realized, you know, and I I didn't mind, you know, by the I dropped out after two years uh, to play music, but. Um, but I was, by the end, you know, I was writing papers for other people here and there and doing stuff like that. So I, 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 I kind of, I, I felt free. I always loved the notion when talking to musicians of, uh, especially early on, uh, names of the bands and names of oh, the God. bands that didn't even, oh my that didn't make it. Like, you know, you oh have the strange God. names of the bands, which please feel free to share here, or the names of the bands oh that didn't, God. you know. The, the, it's so embarrassing. It really is embarrassing. I mean, and, and you and you search for these names so long, and sometimes you join a band that already has a name. Um, I remember the names. I'm trying to think of the names of the bands when I was in high school, because it wasn't just bands I was in. I remember there's a band called Frozen Smoke that we used to go see, and they actually had a fog machine. They had a dry ice machine at St. <laughs> Mary's, and they'd do that. I was in a band called Shades of Soul. Nice. That's uh, that. That played at the. Uh, that's good. That was like uh, that was a cool. I, I'm sure that's been used many times in that. Uh, and I had a band in high school with this other kid who was a guitar player. Was a very good guitar player, and I think the band was called Grace and Favor. It's very, you know, British sort of Jethro Tull, and we're going to be, you know, I don't know, so many different. What instrument? But that's what I want. What instrument did you play? I was guitar player. So I was guitar player. I could play some piano and I could sing. I could sing, and uh, but I was mostly guitar player. After two years at BU, is there a conversation at home like, "Hi, hey, folks, you know, uh, I think I'm going to leave and pursue music in Boston." 
I don't think it was such a huge surprise. I was making a living at that point, like playing, and I was had my college schedule oriented around the fact that I would go to school Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then I could leave Thursday and play weekends and do stuff. I was playing out already. My second year in college, I was already out working in New England. I was in a band that was working. And uh, my father was, I was like, dude, I want to, I'm doing this. I'm making a living. It doesn't really make much sense. And he was like, go for it. He gave me a car. He gave me the car and uh, I had a car. And, uh, and, uh, so this was, no, it, this it, was it, not um, a tough sell. Yeah, it made home. sense to, not, no, I, you know, I, I don't know what I looked like from the outside then. I was very, um, busy. I, I, I was kind of, um, uh, you know, I'm sure if you saw me from a distance, you'd think I was a, you know, you'd probably cross the street, but I was, but I was also very busy and uh, very industrious and, you know, trying to make stuff all the time. So I don't know. I think my father could see that I was, I was not, uh, I was not sitting around. I was, I was trying to get someplace. Is there some notion at that point of, I want to do this and I want to do anything, but what the family business is, which is writing. I didn't have any interest in, yeah, I didn't have any interest really in the movie business really at all at that point. I mean, I loved movies. I loved going to the movies and stuff, but I wasn't. And my father had moved us up there. I mean, I don't know. He's probably gave interviews. Oh, I moved up there because I didn't want my kids to go into the business or something like that. Um, uh, I think that was part of it. But no, we didn't have any, I don't think any of the three of us really had any idea about going into the movie business at that point. We all had different things that we wanted to do. And so what, what brought the music in Boston to an end? Um, I went up there. Uh, I had good luck. I found really great people to play with. I played a bunch of bands up there that were really interesting. And you could really, at that point in time, you could play original music and you could play colleges and clubs. You were allowed to play clubs one weekend a month in Boston. And then you could do all the colleges and do everything. But, you, but a lot of bands would play three, four sets of, you know, three, four sets a night. And you'd probably have, you know, you know, you'd have three, four dance sets, and then you'd have a couple of original sets. There's a lot of original music up there. Mm -hmm. So I, I got to be around a lot of songwriters and people like that. And over time, I became like a session player up there. Of, I thought I was really good. And I thought I was going to be this really hot, uh, hot studio guitar player. And I went to L.A. Uh, someone invited me to go to L.A. to join their road band. And I went out there, and I realized when I got out there, they were making a record and I realized I went to some of the sessions and I realized what real session musicians were like. I'd never seen it up close before. And I was just, I instantly knew that I was totally JV, hmm. and, you know, and very good. I was good, but I was not. And that was a real eye opener and went back to Boston and formed a couple of really interesting bands with other people and then started writing songs and then came to New York to try to have a band of my own and became a songwriter and whatever. And I just, um, uh, I've been doing it since I was 13. I kind of could see how good I was going to be and maybe wasn't going to be. And I had started writing lyrics more than songs and started writing short stories. And one thing led to another and I, uh, I got, in, I got interested in writing. And so what happens then? Did, did you move back home or were you still in New York city at that point when you're doing the writing? I was living in Boston. I had a band sort of falling apart and coming together. I was having some, uh, you know, <laughs> health drug problems at the time. And uh, I had a house burned down. It was very dramatic. This house burned down. And a uh, huge thing. And literally, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like something from B.B. King or something. I literally jumped with my Stratocaster from the second floor of this building and lost everything in the fire. And a whole bunch of everyone lived from the fire, but it was very dramatic. And I lost everything, and I kind of used that as a 
sort of excuse. And I moved back into my parents' house for the better part of a year. And I'd left there when I was 17. And now I was back, you know, three, four years later. And uh, I got to know my parents better when I moved back in. I started writing there. It was very, very lonely and very, uh, you know, I felt very gothic and um, alienated while I was there. But I learned how to write a little bit. So there are there are more than a few years be- in between you going off to Boston and, from what I understand, the first you know first movie that script that you sell. Um, are there years where you're wondering uh, is this going to fly or not, or do I have a plan B in place? No, I made a. Um, I, I kind of had a uh, you know feed on both sides, music and the other and the writing stuff. For a while, and I came to New York, and I and I had a production deal, and I had my own band in New York for a while. But that's when I really started to feel like I was up against my own aspirations there, and uh, and um, I kind of uh, made a really big decision, but kind of a brave. I said, "I'm not going to. This writing thing is working out better than I thought, and I'm. I know what I'm not going to be as a musician. And it was a bad time in the music business a little bit, and I just just turned it off cold." And I said, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do any more sessions. I'm not going to bring any more bands. I'm not going to do any more stuff. I'm just going to write. And um, I'll, uh, I was working on a novel. And I thought, you know, I'll write a screenplay. And I'll get rich quick. And then I'll go back and pay for this novel. And I ended up attending bar for almost six years. Uh, I attended, attended bar in New York for about five, six years while I figured out how to write screenplay. A couple of different bars or one place in particular? Uh, no, I started on the West side. I worked at the saloon. I worked for the O'Neill brothers. I, uh, Patrick and Michael, I went down to open O'Neill's 43rd street. I worked down there for two years. I mean, of note, the bars that people might, ancient people might remember. And then I opened a place called Amsterdam's with them and, and spent the last couple of years up on the upper West side of Amsterdam's, but I worked a lot of different places, but, but those are the three major places I've worked. I, I served a lot of people. I'm sure I've served people in your audience drinks <laughs> over the years. I was there for five, a lot of drinks for five or six years on the Upper West Side. Tony Gilroy has been at the top of the entertainment world for a long time as a screenwriter, director, and producer. But early on, before the cheering started, there were some jobs that were not quite as glamorous. I read one of the jobs along the way was, uh, is it true? You sold copier ink? I did. I When I moved to L.A. to try to, when I was going to join this guy's band in the, the, the five, six months I lived out there, um, yeah, I sold uh, my I, I sold uh, toner back in the boiler rooms in Santa Monica. So I, I, I was quite successful selling toner. <laughs> on uh, yeah, I did all. Man, I had a painting company in Boston. I painted apartments. I probably painted I don't know seventy five, one hundred apartments in Boston over the years, and did that on the side. You know, cleaned up at the Sons of Italy Hall in Arlington, Massachusetts. I had all kinds of jobs, man. I, I mean. We always had jobs, uh, plumber's apprentice and Mason's apprentice, and all kinds of shit. May sounds uh, may sound crazy, but those wide variety of jobs along the way, and and everybody has had them in one form or fashion. Once your work really hits, and you're at the top of the game in terms of screenwriting, do those years play a role, and what you went through play a oh, role yeah. in the work that you do now? Yeah, my father used to really piss me off because he used to come by when, like, there was a period of time when 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 Johnny was tending bar, my brother Johnny was tending bar, and I was tending bar. We were both working in Times Square at that point, and uh, he used to come by, and he would be just like, "Oh man, this is the greatest thing, and you're getting the most experience out of this, and you're going to carry this through for the rest of your life." And I was just like, 
at that point I had been doing it like four or five years and I was really, um, I was really, uh, I had enough of the public and I'd had enough of pouring drinks and I did not, uh, it was hard for me to see the, uh, it was hard for me to see the rainbow that he was envisioning <laughs> outside. And, uh, and I mean, he was right. He was really right. I mean, everything that you do pulls in and you can't write, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a big thing with me, you know, you talk to young writers and it's like, you know, if people have done nothing but watch stuff and, and write, um, and they don't have anything to draw on, it's a little, it gets a little limiting after a while. So the, the more things, you know, and, and, uh, and I had the advantage of doing a lot of random, ridiculous things to pay the rent over the, over a, a rather long period of time, um, before I ever hit it, it, it is helpful. So you start writing, and is there a feeling as you're doing it of, I got something here, I know what I'm doing, and it's a, it's a slog, but it's going to work, or is there some question as to whether it's going to work out in the end? You know, I mean, that's such a, you know, that's such a cool question because I was a, I was a really credible musician. I was a super hardworking, credible musician, and I, and I was, and, but I wasn't natural. It wasn't just a dead lock with me. It wasn't like it just didn't drop into the pocket. I had to work for it and it was really interesting and I could, but it was never that basic thing. When I started writing scripts, I think I kind of felt like, wow, I was like home. I was like, wow, this is the thing I know how to do. And like all the weird things I had ever done, all the, all the you know, because I was a big reader and a random reader and all the weird stuff I'd read and all the strange jobs and stuff, all that stuff was like, uh, you know, gathering into a place that of usefulness and, um, it felt natural. And I felt that way. I mean, I feel that way now. I mean, I, you know, you, you get to the job that you are supposed to do. And, and most people, I think, you know, I mean, that, that, that's when you, you have to consider yourself lucky at that. That's the thing you want to do more than anything else is not just find out what you're passionate about. Cause some it's, it's really sad when the thing that you're passionate about isn't the thing that's your natural thing, but man, if you can hook into something that's natural for you, that, that you can turn into a passion or, or, or is that, um, and that's how I felt about writing as I started to do it, even as I stumbled around and I had to write a lot of bad scripts to figure it out, but I did feel like I was at home. Did did you pick up stuff watching your dad growing up that you didn't didn't even know that you were picking up that you all, all realized along the way once you start doing it for a living? Not in the way that you would think. Not in like it doesn't help you. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, people have people think about nepotism or they think about stuff like that, and it's not. I don't. My theory no, I mean, is it's in terms, not exactly I, I, the. I mean, in terms no, but of the I mean, craft. No, but I mean, I, it's related. No, but I mean, it's related. I don't think it. I don't think you pick up on the, I think the value you pick up, well, certainly for what I do, because I'm a replica of my father. I'm an up, you know, I'm, I'm like 2.0 or something. I, I didn't have to invent myself. I kind of do the same thing that he did, but I didn't learn how to do it from him. I mean, it's not like, oh, here's how you hammer the nail or whatever. But I got to see my whole life, what the life is like, you know, what the tempo of it is, how it works. It makes sense. It always made sense to me that like a regular paycheck didn't make sense to me really. It's like you get money in lump sums, you know, it's like things like that. Or how do you live when, you know, the whole world is against you and you've just gotten, you know, a million bad reviews and your play closed to, you know, the, on the, the next morning. And how do you survive that? And how do you, you know, who do you tip and how do you, who, what, which telephone calls do you answer and how do you behave? It's more, uh, 
the life of a writer was made a lot of sense to me. I didn't have to learn the rhythms of that or the tempo of it or the pain threshold of that or whatever. So that, that and, and my father, I don't know. Uh, I saw a lot of great work. I, I grew up in a house with a lot of great books. My father was a great eavesdropper. My father and I would go out for dinner and we'd be eavesdropping on all the tables around us, which later on, I, you know, I kind of figure out is kind of a, a working thing. And, um, and probably in many, many ways I'm not aware of, but, uh, we didn't sit around and talk about, you know, <laughs> three act structure. <laughs> um, do you recall where you were when you sold your first one? I was 30. I had just gotten fired actually from a bartending job where they cleaned house on the whole bar. And I had a son who was on the way, a baby on the way, and a friend of mine. And I sold a script to Canon Films for Writers Guild Minimum on a split, a split check to, to write a Chuck Norris movie that never got made. And uh, um, so I was in New York. I was living on... Uh, I was living in a studio, a little tiny, tiny apartment on 85th Street. And how about the first script that gets made? The first script that got made, I'd written a bunch of scripts and I met a guy named Robert Court. Interscope was a really powerful company back in the 80s. And he, I had written another script that he had read. It was about a couple that got married and invited the president to their wedding. And then they decided to split up. And then the president wanted to go to their wedding for all these other reasons. And they have to, it was a sort of real Preston Sturgis kind of movie. And this guy read that script and he said, hey, man, I'm not going to make that movie, but I want to make a movie about figure skating. Every nine years, there has to be a figure skating movie <laughs> in Purdue. And I want to do Taming of the Shrew on Ice. And I want you to write it. If you And I was like, figure skating, Jesus. All right. And, um, and I was like, okay, I got to get a movie made. And I just hung in, hung in, hung in on that movie. And it turned out. And uh, people still watch that movie, The, the Cutting Edge. So that was the first. And it was really, uh, it was Robert delivering on his promise. And it was me really biting the bullet and just being very determined not to get fired off that job and see it all the way through. Every nine years, huh? Who knew? I, I never had heard that. I don't know. I don't know. He, yeah. had, no, he had a lot of theories and a lot of them were true. He's a very successful movie producer. Figure skating movie. Every nine years. It's time. Whatever. Yeah. It's, it's been like, I don't know, nine years since Ice Castles. It's time. Yeah, yeah. A rumor has it also uh, that as you were approached about the first born movie that you were not so enthusiastic, shall we say, at that uh, first meeting. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, or what you thought, making a, how they were trying yeah, to no, make I, it. There's a, there's a woman, she passed away on uh, Rogue. She's a really important person named Allie, uh, Allie Shermer. Her name was Allie Brecker at the time, and she was an executive at Universal, and she literally lied. Uh, born. She, she comes back. To, she's, she's the one who brings me on to Rogue, and and, and, and we go all the way through Rogue and she's very much responsible for a lot of things. But she, I didn't know her and she, she, she kind of, uh, uh, she kind of misrepresented what was going on with this Bourne thing and, and sent me this script. And I, and I thought the director had, I'd really liked this other movie the director had made and he had passed on a script of mine that I really liked some months earlier. And he was making this thing and I read the script and I thought it was terrible. And I, I literally went to the meeting downtown cause it was, it was a meeting in New York, which you don't have a lot of. I went downtown and I literally went to the meeting just to basically say, I can't believe you're doing this piece of shit. Why didn't you do my movie? And that's how I, that was the beginning conversations on, on Born. So it was, uh, yeah. And from that came a, a beautiful. Yeah, 20 years, 20, 20 years of shambolic success. You see, here, here's been my problem in my career. I've, I've said people, I've never said that to someone. 
you know, this is a piece of shit. Maybe if I had tried that, I, my career would be a little bit better. You know, I, the truth has been the truth. The truth helps and hurts. I've, I've, I've benefited and suffered for telling the truth over the years. Yes. I'm, I'm intrigued also by what you've talked about that, you know, the notion of writing and the solitary nature of writing and then the transition from writing to directing and in directing, you had all these people around. Uh, and is that something that you had to get accustomed to? Is that something you liked right from the get-go when you do Michael Clayton? Well, I'd certainly been a lot, around a lot of movies. I, I had been in a lot of production by that point, and I was very much a, um, I like to travel, and so I would. I, I was a guy who was wanting to travel and go do movies and travel around and do them. And so I'd been in a lot of sets, and I'd seen a lot of other directors work. And uh, um, I, I think it's also, uh, I mean, I think it was also a character flaw a little bit in that, um, and it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, a little bit, you know, about my father letting me leave the uh, leave college. I was very busy and very industrious and very impatient to be a success and very careerist in a weird kind of way. And I kind of, I think, I, I'm, in the end, I'm unhappy kind of musically because I like kind of drove it so hard when I. Uh, when I got into screenwriting, I was like, okay, man, I had another delusion, I think, in a way. Oh, I really want to be an A-list screenwriter. I want to be, you know, I had some sort of, uh, you know, misdirected vanity about that in a way or something. Oh, this will be my identity. And I kind of clung to that way longer than it was useful. And I worked for people sometimes that I didn't, you know, you work with directors and you go, wow, why, 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 why are they doing that? Um, and um, I finally, you know, I got to the point where I was like, man, you, you either put up or shut up. Let's, what do you got? Can you really do it? You're, you, you, you've certainly made trouble for other directors along the way. Let's see what you got. And maybe it's time to do one, you know, where you take full responsibility. And, um, and it took a long time to do that. When I did it, it was extremely, uh, it was one of the, you know, I've had like a bunch of different creative liberating things that have happened to me along my life. And they also, when they free you up creatively, they also seem to free you up. Uh, I don't know. They free you up in other ways as well. I just, uh, I feel so much younger. <laughs> I felt so much younger when I directed Clayton. I was like, oh, I'm in charge. And like, I can relax. And there's all these people to help me. And it is a very different experience. But um, um, it's also much more creatively liberating to be completely responsible and to uh, to not hide behind anything anymore. And uh, and uh, I think that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest advantage. You just can't hide anymore. You have to take full responsibility. And, uh, and that's liberating, weirdly. The result was a terrific, beautiful movie. Uh, but in the early going, in that creation, are there private moments of, you know, can I do this? Or are you a confident oh guy that I, I can do this? No, I mean, you're catching me in an incredibly confident moment in my life right now. I mean, no, I mean, a lot of it is just horrible. I mean, horrible. No one's going to really feel sorry for a screenwriter. You know, I'm a successful Hollywood screenwriter. So it'd like be, it, it would be uh, beyond shameful to <laughs> ask for anybody's uh, sympathy. That's for sure. But it, it, it is a great deal of it is just so unpleasant. And, and the amount of time one spends alone in a room trying to make things happen or beating oneself up over things that, that are not happening. And it, no, it's, it's um, no, the, the, the path to writing Clayton was not fun. And, 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 uh, 
and fraught with failure and took way too long and the and the path to getting it made that's a different exercise then then you're out then you're out you know you're like willie loman you're out running around trying to sell stuff it's a, it's a different energy the 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 energy of creation the energy of sitting in a room where nothing's happening is the worst for for someone like myself and um, i heard that it you know, took I, heard, I don't heard that it took 5 years yeah. to get finally get george clooney as part of it? Yeah, no, I know, no, no, I couldn't put it together. Whole, but no, people don't want to take a chance. People did not want to take a chance at that point on uh, first-time directors. And I was going after movie stars, you know. Denzel Washington didn't want to do it. And, I mean, a whole bunch of people didn't want to do it. Um, and George didn't want to do it. He didn't want to meet, meet, meet with me. Um, and quite honestly, the agency that I had at the time didn't really want me to do it because they wanted, you know, what I thought I wanted. Oh, they want we have an A-list screenwriter. Why do we want to turn him into a B-minus director? You know, what's the... What's the point of that? And how He's about a money maker for us? Not just making that film, but making it or shooting a part of it on your home turf up in Washingtonville, dude, New that, York. Dude, that that was not my intention. Um, we ended up uh, we ended up back in the old neighborhood. It was really not something that I had planned. We I, I thought for sure we would be able to find all those things we needed someplace else and much closer to New York City. And um, that's a long story, but we ended up. We ended up by default, um, and, and and also a great opportunity to shoot out at the trestle, which I'm sure you spent some misspent moments of your teenage <laughs> life out at the trestle, and 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 then also because we were at the trestle, we needed a place to shoot his family's house, and all of a sudden we're back shooting in Worley Heights, which is like 400 yards away from my childhood bedroom, and I'm in houses that I've been that I spent my childhood, you know, hanging out in and partying in and whatever. It was very very weird. Uh, there was only my my brother John was there, and uh, you know, three hundred people standing around the crew and for days, and you're bringing George Clooney to Whirly Heights, and it's just insane. <laughs> and I looked around at one one, and there was only one person there who understood how truly, truly, truly weird it was. That was my brother John, who's the who was the editor on the film, and he's standing across the street, and I'm like looking at him, going like, "Man, can you believe what happened? <laughs> well, look at what are we doing here?" It was very weird. Uh, the great writer Jacqueline Woodson, who's primarily known for young adult work, who's just a terrific writer and a wonderful interview, has always said to me that when she writes, she has the awards that she's won behind her because those awards don't write the next book. And so you've been doing this for a while now. When you sit down, uh, are there still moments of will there be something on the page or on the computer at the end of the day? Or have you done it long enough to know that something's going to come? Uh, in general, it's a terrifying question. And it's, and, and, and most of the time, and I would say for the vast majority of my life, my creative life, that has been the dominant question every day. I will say that one of the other huge advantages of, of doing a show like the show I'm doing now is that, uh, um, it just doesn't wait. It's like being on a dairy farm. The cows have to be milked every day. The pages have to come in. It's it's just this huge undertaking and they have to be perfected and they have to be production. And you, there's just no opportunity for failure. There is no opportunity for slowdown. And everything that comes off this desk in the end is being made. It's not like all the stuff that you write that just falls into the ditch or people you know, it doesn't happen. Everything here is happening. So it's all very real. It has this huge momentum. I can totally foresee being as incredibly productive as, you know, I can see doing another 18 months of this and finishing out the show and having this incredibly productive thing, waking up the next morning and being 
absolutely in Death Valley again and totally lost. I think it's like the job itself, the pressure of it, the deadline, the thing, the machine of it keeps you going. So I'm not right now that right now my pressure is 800 people in Pinewood who are waiting for things to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have the I, I can't stop. So it's kind of good that. Again, after all these years, do you know, and I'll use Michael Clayton as the example, do you know when you write the scene with the no. son or the scene with the, you know, the guy who's had the car accident up in Westchester, do you know when you've written something, I got something here, or is it still all? Yeah, you feel good. Yeah, you feel good. You know when it's, you know when the scene is right. I mean, you know when it locks in, you know, you know, and you know. But but also, you know, the steps it's going to have to go through and the possible chances for it to mess up along the way. And and, and, and even when you finally get what you get, um, when you go out to the audience, uh, anybody who tells you that they're just fully confident is just is just a liar because <laughs> you just you can't you can't not doubt. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's maybe there's, uh, you know, and, and you, I take that back because I've seen some people who just thought that they were just going to. You know, they thought there were rose petals waiting for them, and they just got destroyed. And um, I, I don't, I don't come at it with that. I come with a real sense of doubt when we when we go out, and I I like to be pleasantly surprised. Um, I like, you know, that's not to say that you don't know when you're happy with what you've done. I mean, and that's the main thing. And you you, you got to really. Uh, at this point, that's what I do, and that's what the that's what I try to do on the show. Is like this has to work for me, and it has to be natural, and it has to drop, and it has to be has to have a hook, and it has to be different, it has to be inevitable, it has to be surprising, it has to be all these different things, and you're really going at it. Um, but what the audience is going to make out of it, I don't know. I've I've been I've been confused both ways over the years. I've been overpraised, underpraised, sideways praised. You, you just don't understand it sometimes. But, uh, hmm. You just keep going, you know. One last thing, Tony, and that is, aside from what you mentioned about seeing the life that your father led and uh, you know how money would come in and how the lifestyle was, anything you, you, you point to from those early years that, uh, again, still have an effect on, on the kind of work you're doing today? I think my parents really like amazing. My brothers and I, people wonder why we get along so well and why we all do the same thing or all the same business and how it work and what do we get out of that household. My father invented himself. Both my parents invented themselves and you got to see that in front of you when you were a kid. You knew that they had made themselves up and he made himself into a writer and the joy of his work and the, and the, 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 the optimism and the, you know, the, the curiosity that he had about everything was just so infectious. And my mother, on the other hand, was entirely so practical and so taught us how to make things. You know, she just taught us how to use tools and how to make stuff and how to sew and how to do all this weirdo stuff that we learned how to do as kids and projects and all this crap. And like the combination of the practicality of the stuff that she taught us and the, and the, uh, and the uh, sort of, you know, creative delirium that my father aspired to, you know, you kind of, I mean, that, that's been my, um, I haven't really deviated from that as points of happiness for me in my whole life. So uh, I need to make stuff and I, and I want to be ecstatic about uh, uh, inventing things. And I don't know. I mean, it's a huge, it's very lucky. We're very fortunate to have had that. Um, and I, I think that's the real blessing. I mean, that's the 
that's the uh, that's the big that's the big get. That's that's why we're here. Well, I think I told you the story about having dinner with Manny Eisenberg about 10 years ago. And he told me he's going to a birthday party for your dad. And so I wrote a little note to your dad and your dad sent me a letter saying, I always loved your father. I always thought his first love was show business. And trust me, I, I keep that letter. That was a real, that was a incredibly kind thing to do. Nah, he was really, he was, and he, you know, he, he really, uh, he, he really liked people. I know he loved your parents a lot, man. He just, he just had a, he was just, he, he had no, um, he had no game. He right. really, uh, he really was just completely generous and out there and, and, uh, you know, he, he suffered accordingly. Um, it's not always the, uh, it's not always the best, uh, it's not always the best shell right. to, to fight the world, but, um, he was just a great guy. Yeah. yeah, and you're, I remember your parents. I really do. I really do. I remember your dad vividly, yeah. But, um, yeah. Anyway, man, this is great. What a thing, right? What a thing all these years later. Yeah, absolutely. And what a thing to be able to talk about our dads this way with a smile on our face and tell stories. Yeah. And what a gift, what a gift that is. Yeah. Tony Gilroy. His latest project is a biggie, and that's putting it mildly. The Disney Plus Star Wars series, Andor. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. The episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.